A warm welcome to Ask Agra, Family History Question Time, a series of podcasts recorded in a panel discussion format featuring key professional genealogists from the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives in England and Wales, joined by special guests from the world of family history research. Our panel today will focus on the field of getting started with your family history research how to understand the different types of records which make up the basic nuts and bolts essential to building your history. Where to start? How best to record what you find? What if you can't find what you're looking for? My name is Jill Thomas from Who, What, Where Research, and I will be leading our discussion today. Like my colleagues, I trained to become a professional genealogist and am an AGRA member. Although I live in London, I specialise in researching Welsh ancestry, particularly focusing on non-conformist ancestors, as well as those who served in the Merchant Navy, like many of my family. Joining me on our panel is Anthony Marr of Channel Font Research, a fellow AGRA member, council member, and chair of AGRA's Board of Assessors. He is a key part of AGRA's mission to support continuing professional development and has crucially also worked as a local registrar. No one knows their way around a certificate, whether birth, marriage or death, better than Anthony does. He regularly runs courses at the Society of Genealogists and Faros Tutors, and is a popular and well-known public speaker. Anthony is joined by Nick Sapel, who previously worked as a journalist and a presenter at the BBC, including a stint as obituary editor. He started professional research for clients 10 years ago and is an AGRA associate, continuing his professional journey through the Faros Tutors advanced course with the aim of becoming a full AGRA member. Based in Lancashire, Nick Serple Family History Services also offers a different style of writing up family history projects in a narrative style. Although based in the north, Nick also has Cornish roots and specialises in offering research into Cornish ancestry. Finally, but by no means least, Sarah Pettifer is another AGRA associate and has a background in law. As a native of Yorkshire, Sarah now lives in Surrey, and in between continuing her studies in genealogy, she is also a keen blogger. She specialises in pre-19th century research, and given her legal training, it should come as no surprise that she also works with court records as well. A warm welcome to you all. Turning our thoughts to, to getting started with research, Sarah, how should someone new to family history begin their research? Um, I mean, such as rookie pitfalls to avoid? What are the best subscription site options? Um, or what about actually talking, talking to relatives, that sort of thing? Yeah, the best way to start is really to start with what you know yourself and make a note of your own history, preferably. Um, because your own history is just as important as, as your ancestors if you're um, wanting to record your family for future generations. Um, speak to other members of your family, your parents, your grandparents, if they're still alive, aunts, uncles, cousins, see what stories they've got and what information they've got um, about your family. Um, they might even have records, which might help with um, the cost of obtaining records for your own research. They might also have some interesting stories that you can add as well on photographs any any kind of memorabilia like that. Has anybody else in your family already done some research? You might find if you've got quite a large family that somebody has already started doing some research. So it's worth checking. But obviously with that goes checking that research is, is correct and checking what records they've got. Be organised. Think about what you actually want to research. 
because it's so easy to go off the beaten track. We've all done it and we all still do it. It's so easy to get distracted and wander off down a path that you didn't really want to go down. Subscription websites. Most people will probably start with a subscription website because they're the ones that are most popularly known, particularly things like Ancestry, because obviously you've got the TV programs that they sponsor. But you've also got other websites such as Find My Past, The Genealogist and My Heritage. The different subscription sites have just different subscription levels, which you need to be aware of. Some offer UK-based only records, some offer worldwide records. So you need to look at that and see what records you might be interested in. Most of these websites also have a 14-day free trial period, which is worth checking out. So you can actually try the various different sites to see which you prefer because different people prefer the different, different sites, the way they're set up, etc. A couple of things to be aware with some of these subscription websites. Firstly, they will have online trees that other people have completed. Don't just accept what somebody else has put on an online website. Check that the information is correct. Check that they've got supporting records for that information. It's always best to try and carry out your own research. But obviously, if there are online trees, then you can cross-check with the information that they've got. Also, certainly websites such as Ancestry and Find My Past give you hints. And that's another pitfall that some people just automatically accept the hints. Don't do that. Again, check them out. Check the information in them. Check the records that are supporting them because they might be for somebody completely different, even though the information may be very similar. Um, and the other thing I'd say is just be open-minded. You never know what you're going to come across with family history. You just never know what you might find. Absolutely. Some of our listeners will be just beginning uh, on, on their path to family history enlightenment. Others might be slightly more um, interested and advanced in, in their research. Um, Anthony, do you have any suggestions about how people can get support, training, courses, general advice? And there are lots of institutions now that are offering all kinds of different courses. Yes, I think when we start researching, we all reach a point when we realise that we're not really sure what we're doing anymore or we're, we're looking for records that we're not familiar with and we want to reach out and find some help from somebody. So what I would start with is to look for the groups that could help you. I mean, local um, researchers, there's always a family history society in the county that you're researching. Look for a website for them and they'll have lots of very knowledgeable people who could help. If you want training, you want to do courses, you can look for something like the Society of Genealogists who run courses all the time, online and face-to-face, -face, hopefully soon, um, where you can pick a subject that you need a little help with, like your ancestor was an agricultural labourer or came from Buckinghamshire or something like that. You'll also find lots of forums online, things like Roots Chat is a very good one, where there are lots of very knowledgeable people who can help you with a specific problem. And then if you want to take it one step further, you can look at some of the training courses that lead to qualifications and can lead to accreditation. There are online courses run by a company called Pharos, pharostutors.com, where you can choose a short specific subject course. And from there, you can move on to quite high level sort of postgraduate degree courses. The University of Strathclyde has a program of genealogical training, as does the University of Dundee. And there's also the Institute of Heraldic and Genealogical Studies based in Canterbury that has a fantastic range of online courses at all levels that could help. The thing to remember is we don't know everything. We all learn something every day. And if you don't know what you're looking at, go and find some help for it. You'll find free advice out there all over the place. 
That's excellent news. Um, and following on from that, Nick, um, do you have any recommendations for organising organising your research instead of drowning in paper? I think it's vital that when you start off on this, that you adopt a logical and methodical approach from the very beginning. When you first start off, there's a whole cornucopia of information that's going to be coming into you, and you're going to putting it all down on bits of paper and one thing or another. And when you get to several hundred people down the road and a few months further on, you might then start to wonder how you found out about great Aunt Fanny running off with William the butler and all this sort of thing. So my recommendation to start with, by all means start on paper, write down, as Sarah rightly said, what you know already. One of the best ways of doing it is to either draw up yourself or you can buy very cheaply on the internet blank family trees. You can then fill in as you go along, get relationships, grandparents, great-grandparents and that sort of thing. But I think you are going to get to a stage when you've got so much paper that you're going to have to turn to a computer to try and help deal with it. Now, every family historian is going to have a computer because without it, you're not going to be able to access all the sites that Sarah was talking about and do a lot of the research. A lot of it is online. And what a computer does, it can handle large quantities of information and manipulate it. And in a way, computers were made for family history because it means if you have to correct something, you can correct it on the computer. You're not scrubbing stuff out on bits of paper. Paper is important, but computers can print. So they can print that information that your family may wish to have. You can print family trees. One thing that worries a lot of people is where you store the information because technology changes, it seems, almost daily. It wasn't that long ago we were recording information on floppy disks. We then started burning DVDs of information. Floppy disks have long gone. I think DVDs won't be with us certainly in the next five years. We're moving away from that. Memory sticks are unreliable. I use the cloud a lot. I have an Apple computer, so I use iCloud, but there are plenty of cloud storage available. It's one of the safest systems because most cloud storage companies mirror their website, so they've got a double um, helping of the information if anything does go wrong. And the other thing I think is worth doing, and, it, and again, it's a good discipline, is backing up your computer onto a separate hard drive, remote hard drive, plugged into the computer. So if your computer does die, and goodness me, they do die, you at least have got a backup for that. You really, I think, need to be able to handle this information. And the important thing when you start off, first of all, is to document your sources. If you do that early on, you won't have to be looking back to find out, you know, why you thought that Bill was born in Buckinghamshire or Jenny was buried in um, Hertfordshire, that sort of thing. When you're using your computer, have a look for a good family history program. There are dozens of them online. You can download them. They're not that expensive. And most of them will let you download a trial version. So you can download one onto your computer, try it out for a week or so. If you don't get on with it, it doesn't work for you, delete it and try another one. You normally do that as many times as you like. Personally, I use Family Historian. It's a British program. It's a very comprehensive piece of software. It does loads of things that you may never need, but it does the basic things very well. And just finally on computers, computers generate what we call GEDCOM. A GEDCOM file is genealogical data communication. It was um, thought up by the, um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who've done so much family history research. Basically, it's a standard file used by many family history programs. And if in the future you get around to, say, creating your own family history website, you can use that GEDCOM file to upload all that information onto the system. So 
mixture of paper and computers. Paper's important. I work with paper every day, making notes, but I transfer it to a computer because it's so much easier to manipulate. And I think um, it's worth investigating what program is the best one for you. Well, that's certainly a very good point. Um, I think it's useful to emphasise your point about noting the sources where you found the information. If you ever get to the stage of wanting to commission research, um, then being able to tell an independent third party where you've already looked will help to avoid duplication and it can make the whole project much more focused than it would otherwise be. Thinking about media in general though, Nick, how can one best record family stories about parents and grandparents and how useful are family photographs? Well, as far as family stories are concerned, I think the finest way is to record somebody. There's nothing like the sound of a voice of somebody, particularly when they're no longer with you and you can look back and listen to it. I did a um, project for the BBC some years ago looking at perceptions of the people who, when we moved from the 20th into 21st century, we recorded about 50 or 60 voices of people aged from their 90s right down to primary school children. That was all uploaded to the British Library. You don't need expensive equipment. You can record an interview on an iPhone or any other smartphone for that matter. I'm a big believer in oral history. It's really been lacking to a certain extent, but it's coming back a little bit. But to listen to a voice describing their life is absolutely fascinating. You can also, of course, write, write it all down. Go and chat to Grandad and make notes about his life and what he did and one thing and another. And photographs, to me, a photograph breathes life into the dates and the figures that family history actually is. To see a picture of your ancestors. Bear in mind, very few people got photographed much before the sort of 1870s. Photography is a relatively new science. But I dread to think how many old family photographs get thrown away when an old person dies, there's no one left, they don't want them. Um, if you get a photograph, grab it, digitise it, put it on your computer it really does bring your ancestors much closer to you. Indeed. And looking at the sort of nuts and bolts of, of research, the information that all of these different data sets contain on these subscription sites, from 1837, certainly, I mean, they're based a lot on birth, marriage and death indexes. Anthony, can you elaborate a little bit more about, about the importance of using and finding certificates? Yeah, I think... For most of us, the first document we're going to look at when we start doing our family tree is going to be somebody's birth, marriage or death certificate, maybe a parent, maybe your own birth certificate, maybe your parents' marriage, grandparents' death, um, whatever. And it's important that we understand what those documents are telling us and why, why they are so crucial in establishing relationships back to 1837. As you say, England and Wales started on the 1st of July, 1837, and from then on, birth, marriages and deaths were registered through the civil system rather than the church systems that were going on before, although they did continue. Scotland came online a little bit later, I think 1855, they started doing civil registration. And in Ireland, which of course was part of the, the UK or Great Britain at the time, they started, I think, 1864. So it's not always the same years. When you're searching online, you will generally only be looking at indexes. It's very important, I think, not to assume too much from an index entry. How indexes have been compiled over years has changed, um, how the information in them, what information is contained in them has changed. A lot of trees do go wrong because people have made assumptions based on indexes. So certainly for the 
the key people, your direct ancestors, I would always recommend that you have the certificates, not just look at indexes. You can get them now reasonably cheaply from the General Re Register Office as a digital file, a PDF file for £7 for births and deaths up to a certain year. Marriages, unfortunately, were still work only on paper records, which cost £11. But by a sort of um, careful choice of which ones you need, you can um, make sure you've, you've got the, the ones that absolutely prove the connections in your family. You can also now find for marriages often that the church copy of the register will have been deposited with the local archives and they're, they're now appearing online on Ancestry and Find My Past and other websites. So you want to have a look at when you're choosing which subscription site to work on, perhaps look at which areas each have. They tend to vary by county. So if all your family come from Lancashire, for instance, perhaps Ancestry might be the best choice because you'll find lots of marriage registers on Ancestry from that county. If it's somewhere else, it might be better to go with Find My Past. But the key thing is to make sure you get them make sure you know exactly what they tell you. But also you have to be a little bit careful because these documents are not foolproof. They all rely on somebody who's known as an informant telling a registrar what the parentage of somebody is or what the date of birth was of somebody who died. And sometimes they get it wrong, either by um, deliberate lying to the registrar or just by not knowing the information. So You've always got to be a little bit careful. Death certificates, don't, don't get too hung up on ages on death certificates. People might not be sure how old their relatives were, but just make sure you get the right certificates. I mean, I think I'd probably add to that, because it's my field of special research, that uh, Find My Past is particularly good for nearly all of the Welsh counties in terms of their records. Turning to further afield, I mean, Nick, have you had any experience of trying to get certificates from overseas? Yes, I've, funnily enough, I've just, uh, just had a couple delivered in the last week or so. This particularly happened prior to the Second World War, more because when the empire was still going, a lot of British people lived overseas, they were born overseas, particularly in places like India, and married overseas, died overseas. It was very often that that birth, death and marriage was registered overseas, but it's still available via the GRO. Now, it's important to say that that wasn't compulsory, and not every um, marriage, death or, or baptism overseas was registered. But if you can find it, then it's possible to get a copy of the certificate from the GRO. The best place to look actually is on Find My Past. They have quite a good database of overseas births, marriages and, and deaths, which um, you can look up if you find the name and get the index number. You can go onto the GRO website and order it. Um, and that's well worth looking at because I've come across families who a whole generation never set foot in the UK particularly in India, a lot of British people working in India in the army. And it's army records that are most likely to be the best ones because the military have this system where everything has to be done properly. So not all of them will be there, but it's quite useful sometimes to discover people who've been born or married or died overseas, and you can get many of the certificates. Okay, but I imagine that not everybody, as Anthony has alluded to, stuck to the letter of the law. And what about compliance in the context of civil registration? Um, yes, certainly with births. Um, although civil registration was introduced in 1837, birth registration wasn't actually compulsory until 1874. And I've certainly come across, in recent research I've done for a client, instance where two or three people I couldn't find in the birth registers. So I looked for baptism registers instead. 
unfortunately I couldn't find those either <laughs> obviously not everybody was baptized so you do come across times where you might not be able to find particularly birth registers um, for people alternatives to that and one of them he was born in the late 1860s and I did actually find him in the 1939 register which does include dates of birth but obviously that has to be um, taken with a bit of caution because they're not always going to be accurate people may not recall their date of birth correctly other records you could also look at possibly military records depending on ages um, that kind of thing they would they should have dates of birth in but again if there's no registration of the birth then the dates need to be taken with a little bit of caution. In, indeed they do. I mean, I, I have a very close relative who um, who lied about her age for most of her adult life. Uh, and we, we buried her with her birth certificate. I thought that was the most sensible thing to do, actually. We've all probably had instances of clients asking us to investigate a situation of illegitimacy. Sometimes the birth certificate doesn't come with the father's name. What can you do then, Anthony? I don't think I've ever researched a family where there hasn't been an illegitimacy somewhere along the line, much to the uh, uh, disgust sometime of the, uh, the very respectable client who's appalled that grandma had a baby out of wedlock. The system really, when it came in in 1836, 1837, it wasn't really clear about what would happen with illegitimate birth, and some registrars seemed to take the view that they would never include the father's name at all. But you do find some where the father is named, so... Again, you always have to get the certificate to make sure. In 1874, when the Birth and Death Acts were updated, there was a procedure put in place which meant that from then on, an unmarried father could only be named if he was present to sign the register with the mother. And that's the system that continues to this day. So if you ever get a birth certificate where there is no father name, it's not the case that the mother didn't know or refused to say who the father was. It's because the law said that he couldn't be named unless he was there with her. But then you have to go and look for alternatives, as Sarah says, baptism records, census records, military records. Sometimes you'll find a father named on a baptism record when he isn't on the birth record, when it's an illegitimate birth. Look at a later marriage. Sometimes people will name their father on the marriage register, even though he's not on the birth register because they know, they know who he was and it's not a secret. But again, sometimes you'll find a blank line. But look at every other record you can find and um, see what you can find for linking a potential father. Middle names can be quite a useful one. Where somebody is given an odd middle name on a birth register, that can often be a father's surname. And of course, if you have a candidate for the father of an illegitimate child, always see if they left a will, because if they never married mum, they may have made provision for their children later on in their will. So that's another thing to look for if you have a candidate in mind. Point very well made. And in addition to the complexity of people's ages and dates of birth being incorrectly recorded, there can be lots of other pitfalls associated with different types of, of variants, such as spellings of surname. I mean, Sarah, have you got some examples of those? Um, yes, my unmarried surname is a good example because Pettiferi spelt with a Y, but many people spell it with an I. So you still get variations now. Spelling didn't become standardised until the later part of the 19th century when education became more widespread. A variant is essentially a, it's an alternative spelling of a surname or a first name even. So when you're thinking about research, you need to think about how a name sounds and different ways in which it could possibly be spelt. Common spelling variants can include using W instead of B and vice versa, 
G's, J's and Y's are often used interchangeably. So is T and D. Vowels are often interchanged, particularly things like, as I've just said, I and Y. They're often spelt differently because of different locations, people's accents, particularly with census records. People were speaking to the enumerators and telling them their names. Quite often they would be written as they heard them. So an accent could certainly mean a surname was spelt incorrectly or even the wrong surname could be written down because they might have heard it completely incorrectly. They might be incorrect because of mistranscribing. So when a document's been transcribed either on one of these subscription websites or even transcribed from one document to another with a sense of returns, it could be written incorrectly. Think about the roots of a surname. Surnames usually develop from either a family's location, an occupation, nicknames, patronymics, which is when a son is given the father's name or when a matronymics, when a daughter is given a mother's name. That's often one thing to look out for. Certainly with first names, they were often passed through generations. So you might find, a standard practice, you might find um, an eldest son was called by the same name as the paternal grandfather. The second might be by the maternal grandfather, the third by the paternal great-grandfather, and so on. Um, so that's a trick to look out for when you're searching for generations uh, families. One good resource is the Oxford Dictionary of English Surnames. Um, it's a very useful source where you can find different spellings of a surname and the origins of a surname. Uh, Nick, do you have any suggestions as to how to manipulate some of these data sets? What can you do? But it's an important point that Sarah makes because when you see a transcription on one of these sites, that's a third generation. It's been written down by an enumerator, as Sarah said, who wrote it. It's then been written down onto the census sheet, and he may or may not have spelt it right, and then it's been transcribed by somebody else. So you're a long way down the line. There is one thing that's quite useful, and FreeBMD use it, and so do one or two other sites, and that's something called Soundex. Now, Soundex is, uh, without getting too technical, a phonetic algorithm that indexes surnames by sound. In other words, if you search for something on Soundex, it'll find names that sound the same as the name you're looking for. My surname is quite uncommon. Um, it was only never found outside Cornwall until the 18th century. But in documents I've gone back with, it's spelt seven different ways. And by doing that, you will catch uh, transcription errors, you will catch mistakes in census records written by enumerators. So it's very useful. So if you've got the option of a search, you can do it with Soundex. You can also do on Ancestry or something called Similar. So cast your net as wide as you can. Do not assume that because you spell your surname Cook without an E, that your ancestor didn't spell it with an E. Very important to realise that, as Sarah said, spelling didn't settle down until literacy improved in the 19th century. So we've, we've seamlessly actually moved from the whole issue of civil registration into uh, looking at the census. Again, in Welsh research, there are lots of challenges because there are two different ways of spelling a place one using the English variety and the other one using the original Welsh. But sometimes we just can't find an ancestor uh, when, they, when they ought to be in a census return. Sarah, do you have any ideas about why that might be? Well, you have to think about where you're looking at the census return. If you're looking in a specific area, then have they moved? Look at the neighbouring areas. Think about what business your ancestor was in, their occupation. Could they have been staying away from home for some reason that particular night when the census was taken? Because, of course, these only record 
a person's whereabouts on that particular night. So, for example, an agricultural labourer may have been working away at the farm on that particular night, so not recorded at home. Travelling salesmen may have been away selling their goods. In particular, soldiers and sailors, in the, certainly in the earlier census, weren't recorded. They would be missing because if, if they were away on duty. So cast your net in terms of census areas as wide as possible. Think about where they could be. With the subscription websites, if you're just searching for a year and a name, then it will probably throw up a number of results anyway. So look down the list because you might find him on page 10 rather than on page one. Always search as many of the results as you can. They could have gone abroad, of course. So you could think a little bit wider in terms of passenger lists, that kind of thing. They're all usually available on um, subscription websites. Think about transcription errors. It may just be that they are missing and you will never find them because for some reason they have just been left off. Some people avoided being recorded in census returns. They just didn't like it. They may have been missed when the documents have been transcribed. There are also a number of census records which you will not find because they are simply missing. They have been lost, damaged, destroyed. You can check on the National Archives website what census there are. Some of the subscription websites may also be able to tell you which, um, which, what the coverage is as well. Certainly, I found in the 1861 census, which is actually the worst census for missing records, in a recent project that I've done for a client, a number of relatives of their relatives weren't found in the London area because the, the census just don't exist anymore. Who else has comments to make on, on census records and record taking? I think it's easy to assume that our ancestors weren't as mobile as they actually were, and Sarah's hinted mm. at that. Bear in mind that farm labourers up towards the end of the 19th century often hired themselves out for a year at a time. They had hiring fairs. So you worked for a year for a farmer, and normally at Michaelmas, you went off to the hiring fair and could be hired by a completely different farmer somewhere else. I found someone the other day who had actually relocated from Northumbria to Kent um, to work on a farm. And in between the censuses, bear in mind the censuses are only every 10 years, the ancestors you're looking for might have moved half a dozen times in that 10-year period. And that's something you've got to think about as well. And as Sarah said, if they're working away, they, 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 um, they may get missed out. And if they're an itinerant farm labourer, they may be sleeping in the barn and just nobody bothered because they weren't part of the family. It's, uh, it can happen. So yeah, censuses are really helpful, but don't assume they're going to solve all your problems because they're not. I think my personal tip would be to always remember to deduct one year from the age that you're looking at on a census return because uh, they tended to be taken within the first quarter or early April anyway of the year. And also, I think the other point that I would make is that the mid-19th century was really the turning point in terms of urban geography in, in, in England and Wales. And it was a turning point because we went from being a, a predominantly rural-based agricultural population into an urban-based industrial population. So the opening up of railways and that kind of thing can cause quite a lot of domestic migration. Moving on, I've got two short questions for you. What would be your go-to website or book to help with research? And following on from that, what common errors are made by beginners and how can they be avoided? So Sarah, let's turn to you first. Okay, well, I like the National Archives website. Um, it has a wide range of research guides, which are really, really useful. 
and because they also include links and tips on where to actually find different records and you can also download quite a lot of the records from a national archives website itself at the moment books i would say ancestral trails by mark herber because it's just very comprehensive and very easy to read tips common errors i think that goes back to what i was saying before about beware the online family tree don't assume everything in somebody else's family tree is correct always check the documents and the same with the hints as well and also don't assume that the family stories that you've been told are correct always think about whether you want to prove them or try and disprove them and what about you anthony well, for websites, I'm going back to civil registration. I think I, my go-to website is always FreeBMD because that's a free transcription site where indexes of birth, marriage and deaths have been uh, made available, freebmd.org.uk. It also has an excellent search engine which allows you to put in first names, surnames, search by registration district, search by quarter and year, and by looking at records on the same page, when you find them, you can find out maiden names, you can find out who people married. It's a very, very powerful search engine to use. Once you've found the entry you want, you can then go to the gro.gov.uk site and order the certificate that you need. As far as books go, I'd echo um, what Sarah says about Ancestral Trails. That's a very important guide. I also like things which give me a sense of place. So Fillimore's Guide to Parish Atlases is excellent and there's the parish atlases of england um, which is a, a more recent one by tim cocking it allows you to see where your ancestors lived where the district's covered where the parish is covered to get that sort of sense of place there's also a book called tracing your ancestors of national archives by amanda bevan which i always recommend to everybody researching families as far as tips go or errors i think one of the errors that a lot of people make when they're searching is to search with too much information and you narrow down what you're looking for too too closely and you miss what you want so if you can't find somebody on a census try leaving out the surname use a just the first name and their place of birth and their age if you're looking for a family look for the child with the most unusual name if mum and dad are john and sarah look for the child called matilda or cadwallader or whatever and that's the one you might find so be careful when searching not to put too much information in. Nick, what are your highlights? I'm a great fan of family search. They really are the foundation for a lot of family history research across the world. And family search, their website is good in a number of reasons. One, you can search it for people. Um, secondly, they have some great tutorials on it, um, explaining how you, you do things, and they're, they're very knowledgeable. And thirdly, they also have links to where you might find things like parish records. Um, and for me, I do quite a lot of research in Cornwall, which is where I came from originally. They have an awful lot of original images of Cornish parish records that they've photographed over the years. So you can actually see the actual record itself. And I've gone back to sort of before um, 1600 with records on family search. So worth a look. And the other one, if I can have two, is GenUK, which is a site that looks at a, a place tells you what the church is, tells you where the records are, gives you a bit of a background into where your ancestors might have lived. So if you want to look at a particular parish, it'll give you a little bit of background information. As far as books are concerned, I, I've got to echo Ancestral Trails. It really is a good starter's guide to um, exactly how you should go about doing it. As regards tips, one really, I meant to bring it up during the certificate discussion. 
a lot of websites will allow you to order GRO certificates through them. Ancestry does it. You can click on someone in Ancestry. It says, would you like to order their birth certificate? You will be paying almost twice the price that you should pay for it because these sites make money out of doing it. The only place to get birth, marriage and death certificates for England and Wales is the General Register Office website. And they do send stuff abroad. So even if you're overseas and listening to this, you don't need to use one of these third-party websites to buy your certificates. You'll just be getting ripped off by, with a large amount of money. I think that's important. So something else to think about. Excellent. Um, well, I'm going to add my pennyworth to the conversation, which is that uh, obviously being of Welsh stock, I would need to turn to the National Library of Wales website, which is the most fantastic resource. They have various elements, including free searches of Welsh newspapers, uh, sadly only to 1919, but maybe they'll expand on that at a later date. Details of marriage licences, uh, wills before 1858 have been digitised. There is the tremendous Knevin project, which is to do with tithe maps, which have all been digitised across Wales. And it's really helpful in finding place names, because there are also multiple place names in Wales, as, as there are in England. My book, I think, would be Surnames of Wales by John and Sheila Rowlands. At this point, I should pay tribute to Sheila Rowlands, who we've just lost. They've been, both of them, have been absolute stalwarts in researching Welsh ancestry for many, many years. Our last question then, and I'm going to, Anthony, I'm going to put this to you. How and when does commissioning a professional genealogist add to family history research? I think the key thing to think about when you're getting stuck with your research and considering using a profession is that you're paying for two things. You're paying for time and you're paying for expertise. It can be a very cost effective to employ a professional if you want research done in a county that's a long way from you. You don't want to travel 300 miles to a county archive. You can employ a professional locally to do that for you. It may be that that professional in that area knows of records that you wouldn't find otherwise that aren't online exist in the archives that could get you past that brick wall that you, you've been up against that you may never have found otherwise. So you don't have to spend a lot of money, but you're paying for that specialist knowledge and saving you time. It's for everybody to decide whether that's worth it. Some people will be quite happy to spend years and years and years working on their own tree. Some people want to get past a, a blockage quickly. Whatever you do, I'd always say start with the Agra website because there you can drill down by area you can drill down by specialism to find the person in the right place with the right knowledge that could help you. Excellent. And Nick, do you have any examples for your own work that demonstrate this point perfectly? My favourite one is finding the half-sister of a woman who thought she was an only child. She was the legitimate child of, of her father and his wife, but he'd had a fling with his secretary. We're talking quite a long time ago now, and that had resulted in a another child, and that child had been fostered out and stayed partly with her natural mother, partly with her natural mother's family. And about 10 years ago, I located her and managed to introduce her to her half-sister. Her half-sister didn't know she existed, and the illegitimate child didn't know she had any relations at all. And it was quite a heartwarming meeting. Unfortunately, one of them has since died, but for about four or five years, they communicated, went to see each other. And that, for me, was well worth the effort that went into looking for it. And Sarah, what about you to round up? Recently, I've um, done some research for a client who wanted to know more about his 
grandfather's involvement in the Second World War. So he wanted me to go and look at the war diaries at the National Archives. Um, he'd done a little bit of research himself, but he didn't have time to, to go and actually look at them. They were fascinating. Um, his grandfather was a lieutenant colonel in the 62nd Anti-Tank Regiment of the Royal Artillery. And with the World we were able to trace his movements for six months prior to the D-Day landings, um, where they were training in the Eastbourne area. And then we were able to follow his movements across France and Belgium and into Germany. He was eventually posted to the Mediterranean and the War Diaries then ceased because they're closed for 100 years. Um, so you'll have to wait until 2049, unfortunately, to be able to look at those to see what, where, where he went from there. It's worth noting that the war drives for the Second World War are only available at the TNA, uh, the National Archives. But the war drives for the First World War, if anybody's researching our ancestors who were involved in the First World War, are actually digitised on the National Archives website uh, and can be downloaded for a small fee of £3.50. Great news. And of course, we have another expert panel who are going to be discussing military ancestry and also researching British ancestors in India, one of our later podcasts. But to bring this to a conclusion, I'm absolutely delighted to have been joined by Sarah Pettifer, Nick Sapel, and Anthony Marr. Thank you all very much for participating in this, our Getting Started podcast. And if anybody's listening at home thinking, gosh, this all sounds quite daunting. Remember that all four of us had to start somewhere when it came to becoming professional genealogists. We've all had other careers. So don't be intimidated or discouraged. To help you, we've produced a handout which can also be downloaded on the page that you're looking at on the AGRA website. The next podcast is going to be researching before 1837, because as Anthony mentioned, that's the introductory date for civil registration in England and Wales. If anybody listening at home has any questions that they would like to put to our panel on, on this topic, getting started, we regret that we can't answer specific brick wall questions of an individual family history nature, but do send them in to askagra at agra.org.uk. And remember, if you do get stuck with your research, there's always a very good AGRA member or associate, probably not that far away from you. Thank you for joining us.